back in the mid 80s uh, I was pastoring a church in Brownsville Oregon and I was asked by a group of parents who to lead a response to the local high school's proposal for a new AIDS curriculum that that was being required by the state and we had all seen what was proposed and we go what is this about it was during the time when AIDS epidemic was decimating the gay population. It was then called GRIDS, uh, gay-related immune disorder, and they later changed it to AIDS to, to kind of remove the stigma of the gay side of it. And if you were a sexually active homosexual, you were likely to get the fatal disease. And I myself saw three people pass away from it, uh, family and other friends that I had had. I also recently read a book by Randy Schultz at, at that time. I had read it. It's called The Man Plates On. Randy Schultz was a um, himself was a, was gay uh, general for the San Francisco Chronicle and chose to wrote this book. And the book traced the origins of the disease and it became clear why it spread so rapidly and extensively among the homosexual community. The promiscuity and the dangerous behaviors that took place at the bathhouses of the YMCA, it was a breeding ground for the disease. It was absolutely no wonder why it spread so rapidly and so extensively. Now the curriculum went into detail about many of the dangerous behaviors that was brought out in the book. I had they, most of them I had no clue what they even were. In fact, it kind of I, I left, left reading that book just feeling kind of it didn't relate too well to it. The curriculum that that we're proposing assumed that the kids were going to be sexually active, and with these assumptions, there were three values in terms of how it was coming to play. Number one, as long as it's consensual, any sexual behavior is okay. That was the philosophy undermining the curriculum. Number two, you may not coerce or cause harm. In other words, don't get AIDS and don't curse somebody that, that, uh, that, that causes harm. And you may not judge or criticize anyone else's choice of sexual behaviors. Those were three values that underlined the whole thing. And I'm sitting there thinking, not once did it suggest an alternative that could be safer and better and healthier in all respects. And as I read the curriculum, I could not figure out how, how anyone thought the curriculum was beneficial. Why even put it out there? What benefit of it? So, the, so to research the matter, I spent almost two weeks at the Oregon State Library in Corvallis, Oregon, to understand the philosophy and understand the curriculum. I studied virtually everything out there on the topic of uh, sex ed curriculums and the, and the overall arching philosophy. And during my research, I ran across one of the most influential psychologists of the day, and one who was the major influencer of most sex ed curriculums, even to this day. His name is Carl Rogers. And Carl Rogers was considered the leader of the, what's called the third wave of psychology. The first one was Sigmund Freud that everybody knows of, who was called the father of psychoanalysis. And then there was B.F. Skinner, who practiced behavioralism, or who popularized behavioralism, I should say, which is, I won't get into what that is. But Rogers felt that man was basically good, and that each person had within themselves the means to determine what is best for them. He called it non-directive, or non-judgmental counseling. And his goal was to apply his methodology to education, to replace religion with psychology as a means to determine our values. And they called it values clarification. Now to develop this approach, he recruited eminent psychologist William Coulson and a Catholic school system uh, in San Diego called the, the Immaculate Heart. There's a whole bunch of other titles that go with it. I'm just summarizing Immaculate Heart. 
They developed what's called a counter group. You ever heard of counter groups? That comes out of Rogerian Council, Carl Rogers, and worked under the premise that there is no right or wrong, only the ability to make correct decisions, and that we will help you to explore what is best for you. Now, the experiment was a tragic disaster that destroyed the school system. It virtually no longer exists anymore because of what happened there. And the morals, behaviors of the priests and the nuns who ran the system, it, it, it basically, a lot of them wanted out of their, their vows. And yet the philosophy they developed and popularized is still in use in most sex ed curriculum. And I keep going, what was driving this whole thing? Now, when, res when, when researching this disaster, I decided to give William Colson a call. And I spoke with him on the phone, and he communicated his sense of remorse for what took place and what happened. In fact, Carl Rogers went into a deep depression after seeing what had transpired as a result of his input. And William Colson uh, and I talked for probably well over an hour on the phone as he gave me some direction, some insight on how to pursue this. He told me how millions of dollars are being poured into non-directive courses in sex education that actually promote premarital sex, homosexuality, and other attacks on the family. And Colson said it's because of this bogus definition of tolerance that proceeds from value of clarification. And he sent me some of the results of his study, and he told me he's spending the rest of his life trying to undo what he has done. Now, he's passed away now, but he, he's, he went aggressively to go to the school systems and to court to uh, government systems to undo uh, all that took place. Let me quote something he writes. He said, today, there is no more Immaculate Heart religious order, just as there is no more Immaculate Heart college. The institutions didn't survive. And explain that when you look at the fruits of what they did, they are so uniformly rotten that you have to think that a satanic spirit had entered the group. If they had been visited by an angel, the fruits would have been delicious. And yet the influence of this philosophy cannot be understated. It still permeates all of our sex ed curriculum, even though they later denied it. They were also friends with Abraham Maslow, who, if you've ever seen the five charts with self-accusation, who realized they were off course as well. Now I use this and other information in the paper that we presented to the school board. There's 12 people on the board. And the board unanimously accepted our position, the curriculum that we recommended, which highlighted the value of abstinence, that it has value. We want to encourage that. We wanted to be more directive in what we were promoting. And my paper was later used by five other school districts in Oregon and was even used later in Idaho Falls when I moved there. Our landlords were on the, on the board. They wanted to read my paper. They read the paper because they were going through something similar. And uh, so a similar parenting group went so far as to even have Colson come to Idaho Falls. And because I am the one who had promoted him as a, something, somebody to look into, uh, William Colson and I had the chance to spend a couple hours together around lunch. Now, I cite this story to lay the groundwork for, for today's why question. The question is this, why is the church so judgmental? Doesn't Jesus teach us not to judge others? Now, again, I went to the verse in Matthew 7 some months ago and addressed that topic, so I'm not going to go that path with it right now. So if you want to do that, go back to that sermon and give you copies of it. But the question reflects an attitude that is prevalent today. And the attitude is that no one idea is better than any other idea whether it be sexual, philosophical, or religious, that all ideas are basically equal and that we have to accept them as such. Therefore, we should be tolerant in that there's no basis for anyone to judge anyone else. And yet, 
And here's the rub. And yet we intrinsically know there must be some moral guidelines, but how do we know what it is? And this morning I want us to ponder the question, how do we respond to people who claim the church judgmental? And I want to give three responses, and we'll explain that. But let me start with another verse that immediately doesn't seem to address it, but as we reflect on it, I think you'll see how it applies. The verse is Proverbs 14, 12, and it says this, There is a way that appears to be right to man, but the end, it leads to death. That's a powerful verse. There's a way that appears right to man, but in the end it leads to death. So let's use that verse to return to our question, how do we respond to people who claim the church is judgmental? And that is this, everyone, everyone has a sense of righteousness. We have a sense of moral oughtness. There's a way that seems to right unto man. And in our passage, we are told there's a way that seems right. We have a sense of what is right, or we at least feel what's right to us. And Paul tells us why in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, he says, he said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. You see, part of being made in the image of God is we are created with this moral sense this moral oughtness, and it can be trained properly or improperly. And the fact is, we have a strong sense of right or wrong, and all of us, Christian or otherwise, use it to judge others accordingly. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this statement. He said, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right or wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. It seems then we, we are forced to believe in a real right or wrong. Now, Jonathan Haidt, who considers himself a liberal atheist, has noted this reality, and he's written a book called The Righteous Mind, which is focused on this very thing. And in his book, he says, I chose the title The Righteous Mind to convey the sense that human nature is not just intrinsically moral, it's also intrinsically moralistic, critical, and judgmental. The linkage of righteousness and judgment, judgmentalism is captured uh, in some modern definitions of righteousness, such as arising from an outraged sense of justice, morality, or fair play. The link also appears in the terms self-righteous, which means convinced of one's own righteousness especially in a contrast with the actions and beliefs of others, narrowly moralistic and intolerant. And he goes on, he says, I want to show you that an obsession with righteousness leading invariably to self-righteousness is the normal human condition. In other words, people, it's this. When people claim the church is judgmental, it's across the board. We're not unique. And I think we actually have a better criteria to work from. And not that judgmentalism is the approach that we want to take. What I'm simply saying is this. You have to accuse others as well of the same thing. But the second thing I want to note regarding that is our subjective moral oughtness seems right to us. Let me again quote Haight when later he says this. Moral intuitions arise automatically and almost instantaneously long before moral reasoning has a chance to get started. And those first intuitions tend to drive our later reasoning. If you think that moral reasoning is something we do to figure out the truth, you'll be constantly frustrated by how foolish, biased, and illogical people become when they disagree with you. But if you think about moral reasoning as a skill to justify one's own actions and to defend the teams we belong to, then things will make a lot more sense. 
I'll elaborate that on a little bit. Here's another point that's quite relevant to this whole thing. is that we seldom question what shapes our consciousness. We seldom ask the question, why is this thing right or wrong? How do I know what it right or wrong looks like? It's an important question. And it's a question everybody should be asking when they, when they have a moral sense or oughtness. For the believer, it's important to know how God wants us to live. And how do we know that? And the problem is that we cannot discover that through culture around us. Because there's too many conflicting ideas over the course of time and history and even into contemporary times. Too many conflicting ideas of morality to be able to draw from. Now, Plato introduced the illustration of a rider and elephant that helped make this point. He said the mind is divided like a rider on an elephant. And the rider's job is to serve the elephant. The rider is the conscious reasoning, the controlled process, the logical processes. The elephant's the other 99% of mental processes that occur outside of awareness, but that actually govern most of our behavior. They're automatic. We don't think about them. They're just impulsive in terms of what we do. And the rider and the elephant work together, sometimes poorly as we stumble through life in search of meaning and connection. And the rider can see into the future and help the elephant make better decisions. The rider acts as the spokesman for the elephant and tries to give justification and an explanation for the elephant's behavior. We first make our judgments rapidly, and we are dreadful at seeking out evidence that will disconfirm it. In other words, we make our decisions on impulse, and we later find reason to justify the impulse. We all have a sense of righteousness. Christian, non-believer alike, it doesn't matter. And all of us can become self-righteous. So the Christian is not unique in this sense, and I believe no worse than others. In fact, I believe our criteria is, is better. The accusation that Christians are judgmental while others are more fair, caring, open-minded, and tolerant, it's just too simplistic and too naive. We all have a tendency to be self-righteous. The one that will accuse you of being intolerant can be the most intolerant person you will ever know. We all have a sense of righteousness. There's a second point I want to observe in response to a question, how to respond to people who claim the church is judgmental, is this. Acting on our sense of righteousness has consequences. In other words, whatever your value system is and how you live it out has consequences one way or the other. First of all, we want to know most passive righteousness lead to a destruction end. Notice the, the, our verse again is, there's a way that appears right to man, but the second part of it is, but in the end, it leads to death. Note the second part, it leads to death. Do you get it? Just because it seems right, just because it appears right to you, does not make it right. What seems right to us can lead to death. We can deceive ourselves. The heart is deceitful, and we have to have something outside of ourselves, and we'll look at that later. But our conscience alone cannot be our guide because it's not reliable. It can be shaped and influenced by other things. And that seems to be the focus of Paul in Romans chapter 3, where he quotes, first of all, to start his art to bring his argument to a conclusion from the first two chapters he quotes from Isaiah 59 7 which tells us that no one is righteous no one seeks after God and we all seek to go after our own way the way that seems right to man and then in verse 23 he brings the whole first three chapters to a close and to a conclusion and he makes this statement for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God wow what a way to 
make friends and influence people. But that's the reality that we work from. And then he later tells us in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is, does anybody remember? Death. Wow. Sounds like our Proverbs 14, 12 verse. There's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. But some of history's greatest evils are by people who had a righteous cause. They thought they were doing the work of God. They thought they were doing something great. And some of the greatest evils, we have, we have this flawed capacity to justify what we do, no matter how evil we may later see it to be. In his book, Mein Kampf, Hitler carefully lays out a moral philosophy that justified the annihilation of the Jews. You know, the, what Hitler did was not made up as he went along. If you read Mein Kampf, you see he, his, his underlying thinking that drove what caused the annihilation of six million Jews and 12 million others, plus starting a whole world war. Stalin, and the killing of 20 million of his own people and imprisoning another 60 million in the gulags, he was trying to speed up the process of introducing the Marxist utopia that he envisioned, and all these other people that he had to kill were simply in the way for this, of this utopia, and he had to get them out of the way. We see it in China. Even today, under the new rules, all religious organizations are required to obey and promote the Communist Party values. We see it too in Islam, where honor killings and child marriages are common. The list goes on and on and on, all deemed righteous by its adherents. But I want to note this. A biblical view of righteousness leads to a good outcomes. In his 2018 book, The Chapter Gap, How Good Are We?, Philosopher Christian Miller observes that literally hundreds of studies link religious participation with better moral outcomes. For example, sociologists Christopher Ellison and Kristen Anderson discovered that levels of domestic violence in a U.S. sample were almost twice as high for men who did not attend church versus those who attended once a week or more. Religious participation has also been linked to lower rates for 43 other crimes. Such studies seldom make the news. You don't see them reported. But the weight of evidence, as Haight observes, is not in favor of the religion hinders morality hypothesis. Around 30 years ago, I'm old enough to remember it, in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, there was an important trial for one of the world's leading pornographers by the name of Larry Flint. Now they said his stuff was so perverse that it actually made Playboy magazine look tame. But Larry Flint had a brilliant lawyer, had one goal in mind, and that is to erase distinctions. It took them over five days to find the first member of the jury because in order to be a member of the jury, Flint's lawyers did not want you to belong to the church. Because in his mind, if you belong to the church, you could not qualify to be a fair juror. And so they eliminated all religious people from the jury. And when a witness was being questioned by Flint's lawyers, he would ask them something like this, have you ever been to an art gallery? And of course the answer was, well, yes, sir. Have you ever been to a gallery where you had to pay to get into it and have seen the painting of undressed people by the great masters of art? Oh, yes, sir. Would you please explain, explain to the jury why you believe that art to be, uh, uh, that to be art and my client's stuff to be pornographic? Now, of course, on a witness stand, what are you going to say? You're not going to get into a philosophical discussion of art and how to make these distinctions. You can't do it in that environment, in that context. And in other words, he's setting them up. He knew what he was doing. So when it comes to the questions on ethics, it seems to be a common strategy. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his book, Pilgrim Regress, he tells a story that shows the danger of this argument. He says the pilgrim in the book 
has been sent to prison. If you've ever read uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, C.S. Lewis says, no, it's the other way around, that we digress until we finally have to discover Christ. So in, in the Pilgrim in the book, Pilgrim's Regress, is sent to prison for some made-up cause. And every day, the jailer brought before the prisoners their food and would say a word to them. Something like this. If their meal was meat, he would remind them that you're eating dead corpses. If it was milk, he would say it was the secretion of a cow. If the meal were eggs, he would recall them that it was eating the refuge or minstrum of a venomous fowls. So he went on day by day. And one day Pilgrim realized what was going on. He said this. He said, thanks heaven. Now at last I know you are talking nonsense. What do you mean, said the jailer? You're trying to pretend that unlike things are like. You're trying to make us think that milk is the same sort of thing as sweat or dung. And pray whatever difference there is except by custom, the jailer said. Are you a liar or only a fool so that you see no difference between that which nature casts out as refuge and that which she stores as food? If you haven't got the point, it's a powerful point because that's what we do. We destroy distinctions that help us make sound judgments. And if our ethical system has consequences, we need to learn how to make those kind of distinctions because otherwise the end thereof is the way of death. There's a third point in regard to our question I want to note, and that is we need something objective to know what is right or wrong. We need something outside of ourselves. Our hearts are not reliable sources of ethics. I don't trust myself. I have to look outside of myself. And I believe the Bible offers the best alternative. As Psalm 19 tells us, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, right, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. By them is your servant warned in keeping them. There is great reward. But there's another thing to note in that Jesus offers grace and forgiveness. Certainly benefit by God's word, giving us a guide as to what righteousness really looks like. But that's only part of the matter. We need to be able to live it out. And there's the problem. That's the heart of the matter. Is that we might even know, even if we do know what morality looks like, what right or wrong looks like, that doesn't mean we're able to live it out in the way that we should. And Jesus deals with that problem when he went to the cross. As we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But here's another point that's often missed in this whole discussion, and I think it's crucial in today's debate. A true understanding of forgiveness overcomes the dangers of victimhood. One of the key problems with our modern sense of righteousness is that it's focused on victimhood. Let me explain. There are basically three morally-based cultures. The first one is an honor-based culture. When someone attacks your honor, you must respond. And you get your, you get your dueling guns, you go and you have a duel because your honor demands that somehow you make it right. Then there's a dignity-based culture. So you must respect me, my dignity, because of who I am. Now, unlike honor-based cultures, uh, you may never defend yourself publicly, but you do it privately. You go to that person and say, hey, you put me down. Now, these two things 
have some things in common. Number one, if somebody attacks you, you have to fix it, not someone else. It's your problem to address. You don't go around boasting, complaining about all your suffering. You find ways to cope with it. And these were the narratives of past generations. But in today's culture, we have a new narrative, a dangerous narrative. And I call it the victim-based culture. This new narrative says that I am a victim, and everything I say to you is motivated by love and insight, whereas everything you say to me is motivated by hatred. All forms of disagreement are equal with hatred. You have to agree with me. If you do not affirm me, then you hate me, and I become the victim. And as the victim, I am justified in hurting you and doing whatever I need to get recompense. Now, the problem with the victim narrative is that they divide the world into us and them. Now, we must agree with them, affirm them, and take their side. If they disagree, then you say they're not on your side. We confuse love and affirmation, but they're not the same thing. Is there ever a time when love says no? And the answer is, of course. For instance, if a child comes to you and says, Mom, can I borrow the drill? I'm playing dentist with my little brother. Are you going to say yes because you want to affirm him? Or are you going to say no because you don't know what he's going to do with that drill? But when the victim culture takes over, everyone divides themselves into victims, and you cannot say anything unless you are in the victim group. You have to be part of that group, and you must advocate my cause loudly and boldly. Now, in politics, this means the rhetoric is getting increasingly angry. And a statesman who used to exist is one who is bigger than the political arguments under them, and they're able to stand above it and rise above it, and he can say both groups are right or wrong, and he can find an objective, fair judgment. But in a culture that equates all disagreements with hatred, then there are no statesmen. They cannot exist. And that only increases the hostility because there's nobody to mediate between the groups. When we feel victimized, we feel disempowered. I'm the victim, so everyone else must fix my problems, and only I can decide when that is, when my problem has been fixed. You can't make that judgment. Only I can decide appropriate recompense. You must always agree with me. And the primary motivating force for justice in the mindset of the victim is anger and hatred. It brings to mind Amos 6.12, which says, You have turned justice into bitterness, so all your righteous acts taste like poison fruit. So even... If you get it right, even if you have a real cause, it turns it into poison. On the other hand, if justice is motivated by love, you use compassion. And the most powerful words that one can use today are, you've offended me. I've been offended. It's a way to shut everyone else up. It makes living together impossible because I have to make my judgments based on whether you will be offended or not offended. And that's a dangerous way to live. When Jesus was crucified, everyone knew he was innocent. And yet, throughout all history, he is the biggest victim of all. Now, instead of being angry, he said to the Father, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know what they are doing. Now, in a victim culture, I'm competing with you about who is the bigger victim. How much victimization do we need in order to outdo the other person? How far back do you have to go to hold on to victimhood? And some cultures go back centuries and even millennium. They will not let go of it. And we know that happened in a victim culture. We use our past and our present culture to give us status, and we never let it go. And if we hold on to our victim narrative, it defines and cripples us. It must be challenged by something far greater, and that's forgiveness. 
And the question of forgiveness is a very difficult one because your core identity becomes your chosen trauma. That's the problem with victimhood. Your chosen trauma becomes your identity. And we need to let that go. Now the story of the prodigal son dispels the myth of victimhood. You know the story. The younger man is bored, wants his inheritance, so he goes to his father, which was an absolute insult in the culture, and uh, asking for his inheritance. The father gave him the money, even though the insult was real. And then the son went out, and he squandered it all. He lost it all. Then a famine hit. He couldn't get work. He's feeding pigs and having to eat the food that was given to the pigs. And his son said, you know, my father's servants have it better than I do. So he went back, hoping his father might make him a servant. But the father, who was the victim in all this, and had every cause to be angry, instead saw the son in the distance and ran to him and kissed him. And the father offered peace and forgiveness before the son even had a chance to give his speech. Even though he had every reason to be angry, because of his love for his son, he welcomed him back. The father does not respond out of hurt, but out of his love and offers forgiveness and peace. Forgiveness is one of the most expensive things that we can do. It's costly and it's emotional. It's very hard. The reason we see so little forgiveness is so costly. The victim must pay the cost. And in most cultures around the world, forgiveness is earned. It says, you will forgive me when you think I've suffered enough. But not in the Christian faith. It may cost the loved one nothing but it may cost the lover everything and the only way to end victim culture is to learn how to forgive terrible things that happen to us don't have to define us forever this morning we pondered the question how to respond to people who claim the church is judgmental we learned that all of us have a sense of righteousness that causes us to judge others and for most of us is inadequate and has negative consequences We need something outside of ourselves to know and do righteousness and to provide the avenue for grace and forgiveness. Now, I opened my story with meeting William Colson as a result of my research on the state-mandated aid curriculum. Now, Colson and Carl Rogers with him was a key influencer of the curriculum and told us the philosophy that underlines it is non-judgmental and non-directive and regardless of how dangerous certain behaviors are, we cannot even suggest anyone's behavior is better than any other. Unlike things are like, basically, is what it says. Now, if in the statistics I quote you want record of, let me know and I'll, I'll get these to you. I want to apply this. And there's a lot of ways I can go with it. I'm going to be more specific on this case there are more than 357 million new cases of sexually transmitted diseases in the world each year. Many of these are STDs and turn lead to consequences like sterility, infertility, stillbirth, miscarriage, blindness, brain damage, and cancer. Others cause lesions that increase the risk of HIV infection by more than 300%. More than 500 million people have genital infections with herpes simplex virus, and more than 290 million women have HPV infection. And yet, despite This massive worldwide issue, the Centers for Disease Control, influenced by this non-directive philosophy, makes no distinction among the three kinds of sex that are at the highest risk. They won't even state what they are. What's going on here? Why are we thinking this when we should be going, let's learn from this. What's going on? That's what upset everybody with the AIDS curriculum. Why are you putting this out when we got people dying from this disease? What's going on? 
political correctness has so intimidated us that even the Centers for Disease Control can't call out some sex behaviors as far more dangerous than others. And the decision to convolute the matter is an ethical decision and is opposing new intolerant morality. It has consequences and kids are getting these diseases and living with them for the rest of their life and some people have even died as a result of them because we're tolerant. We're non-judgmental. We're non-directive. As philosopher D.A. Carlson says, this new contemporary intolerance is intrinsically intolerant. It's blind to its own shortcomings because it thinks it owns the moral high ground. It cannot be questioned because it's become part of Western's plausibility structure. And worse, this new tolerance is dangerous and certainly intellectually debilitating. Even the good that it wishes to achieve is better accomplished in other ways. I want to close with a story. But the point is, the Bible gives us values for a reason. It's for our good. They protect us from dangerous consequences. They are to help us to live a life that's healthier and better and more rewarding. So let me give you this illustration. Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback Ben Roethlisberger is the youngest signal caller ever to win a Super Bowl. He was a rising superstar in the NFL, the recipient of a number of endorsement uh, opportunities. However, as of June 26, he also had a new perspective on freedom. In July 2005, ESPN reporter Andrea Kremer asked Rothenberger to explain his decision to ride his motorcycle without a helmet. He said, it's not the law in Pennsylvania to wear a helmet. Why don't you wear a helmet? Because you don't have to. It's not the law. If it was the law, I'd definitely have one every time I rode. But it's not the law, and I don't have to. You're just more free when you, you're out there with no helmet. Unfortunately, Rosenberger was involved in a serious motorcycle accident in June of 2006, less than one year later. And when a 62-year-old woman failed to yield at a Pittsburgh intersection, Rosenberger was thrown into the windshield of her Chrysler town and country. His bike was totaled, and emergency road sermon spent over seven hours repairing a broken jaw, a fractured skull, missing teeth, and several other facial injuries. And after being released from the hospital, Rosenberger apologized to the fans, his family, and his team for take, risking his health and life unnecessarily. In another interview, he was no longer focused on taking advantage of his individual freedom. In the past, I've gained more perspective on life. By the grace of God, I'm fortunate to be alive. He also added, if he ever does ride a motorcycle again, it will certainly be with a helmet. I don't know if you get the point, the connection is this. God's laws are there to protect us. We're not trying to be judgmental. We're not trying to be bigoted or closed-minded. We're saying, if you want to live the life that God calls us to, the good life, that's where it comes from.